Well, Scott must have a lot of confidence in me because he gave me 70 verses of Scripture to cover in 30 minutes. So uh, I'm going to do the best I can. So I would say to you, put on your seatbelts because we've got to take off in just a few minutes. But anyway, it has just been a great joy of mine to be able to be here with you over two Sundays and uh, to get to know you. And the fellowship's been wonderful. The food has been great. And uh, there'll be more of me leaving than there was coming. But anyway, I just want you to know how much I appreciate the hospitality that has been shown to me and the love and the kindness. And I appreciate also the way you love my brother, the way you encourage him and pray for him. Being a pastor is not an easy task, but when you have a church family that loves you and encourages you and prays for you, it makes all the difference in the world. I love it when the people tell me, hey, Stan, I'm praying for you because that is the greatest spiritual offering that we can give to each other. Someone said we're tall as, a, uh, tall as the trees when we're down on our knees, and I believe that's true. And so when we're talking to the Lord and fellowshipping with Him. Today we have the topic of uncommon martyr, and we're looking actually at Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8 and going all the way through the end of Acts chapter 7, which has 60 verses. So when you start adding it all up, it's about 60 verses. And, and I've been struggling about how to handle this because... If I read all those verses, then the next thing we'll do is just give the invitation because it's going to take the whole time just reading the verses. But what a great passage of Scripture it is. Let me set the context for you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They did not understand exactly how that would unfold, but God in his providence had a perfect plan and it would unfold just like God said it would. And I've learned this about the Lord. What God says he will do, he will do. And we can always depend on that. And so Jesus said, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when his power comes upon you, then you're going to be my witnesses. The Greek word for witness in the New Testament is the word martyrio, which means martyr. And that is what a witness does. A witness in, for Christ is someone who willingly will lay down his or her life for the Lord Jesus and to be faithful in sharing the Word of God. And so we see that Acts begins to unfold as the disciples move to be the apostles and they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people came to know Christ. He'd preach his second sermon. 5,000 would come to know Christ. He'd preach again, and Luke just says a multitude would come to Christ. In the early chapters, chapters 1 through 7, the church is pretty well confined to Jerusalem. Everything is happening in Jerusalem. They're taking care of Jerusalem. They're reaching people there. The church is looked upon maybe as just another part of Judaism. They're continuing to go to the temple. They're receiving favor with God and man. Everything is going good except for one group of people, and that was the religious leaders. They were looking around, and they were seeing the things that were going on, and they were greatly disturbed by the preaching of Jesus the Messiah. They thought that when they crucified him, it was all over, but that was just the beginning. And you know, that is true. When you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 
it's just the beginning of a relationship with the Lord. And so they began to have opposition, and that opposition grew. And this is what we see. It started out when they brought the apostles before the council. The council said to them, don't preach anymore in his name. And they gave them a warning. And Peter said this, we cannot help but proclaim what we have seen and what we've heard and what we experienced in our lives. We've got to do that. And then Luke tells us uh, that uh, when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John, that they were not trained in the rabbinical schools, they took note that they had been with Jesus. Would God be able to say that about us? That our world today took note that we have been with Jesus. They warned them but they didn't stop. They go on preaching. The next time they bring them before the council, a man named Gamaliel speaks up and he says, listen, if this is of God, you're not going to stop it. But if it's not, it'll run its course. Just be patient. And this time they got out the cat of nine tails and they whipped them and then released them. And incredibly, this was the response of Peter and John after they had been beaten by uh, by the authorities. They rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Isn't that amazing? And then this happened. They went back and they joined the fellowship of the church and they prayed. And Luke tells us that their prayer was so powerful that the place where they prayed was shaken by the power of God. Oh, that God would shake the church again that we would pray with such power and authority that God would shake us up to send us out. And, and so that's what happened. But now the persecution moves to a total different level with Stephen. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. They went from warning, discouraging, and now to martyrdom. And so you see this progression. But in the, the midst of this story about Stephen, you see that God is at work through it all and God, through Stephen, is giving those people another opportunity to repent and come to Christ. And yet they continue to refuse. And finally, they just kill the messenger. And we see that Stephen, in his death, died so much like Jesus. Now, for the past several days, I, I've been wrestling with this text and, and trying to think about how to handle this. Scott Tidwell called me on Wednesday and he said, hey, Stan, do you have your sermon notes? We need to go ahead and print them for Sunday. And I thought to myself, yeah, I have them all right. They're right here in my head and I've got to get them down on a piece of paper. And you know, you never know how fuzzy your thinking is until you get a piece of paper in your hand and you start writing down what you're trying to think about. And so after I got rid of my fuzzy thinking, we have to divide this message into two parts, not two sermons, but two parts. The first part is how to live for Jesus, how to live for Jesus. And that's what we see in Stephen's life. This man was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He was a man that God would use in a mighty way. And so we have to look at, at that part, how to live for Jesus. I don't know about you, but I need to know how to live for Christ. Every day I need to know how to live for Jesus. And then the second part of this is how to die with Jesus. So there's living and there's dying. And in the midst of that, we see the powerful testimony of a man who loved the Lord. 
And so I'm going to refer to the text. I'm not going to read it until I get to the end about dying with Jesus. And then we're going to start at Acts chapter 7, verse 54 and read through verse 60. But it'll be a while before we get there. We find out in Acts chapter 6 that the church had an issue, and that is the Grecian widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. We talked about that last Sunday, you'll recall, about how God would, would move in the lives of the apostles and in the church and, and how they solved a problem in a godly way. You know, we have problems in our church. And every church I know has some issues. I have no idea what the issues are here, but I guarantee you there's some of them. But you know what we need to do is learn how to solve, solve issues in a way that honors the Lord in a godly way. And, and that always works when we seek his will and his direction and we solve problems in a godly way. Same thing works in our lives personally when we seek to solve the issues in, our, in a way that, that honors the Lord and we seek his wisdom and guidance. So they did, and the Holy Spirit led them to say to the church, let's select seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Let's set them over this task. And so they, they, they elected these seven men, and they probably became like the first deacons in the church, and they began waiting on these tables. The problem was solved, and the church continued to grow and multiply, and the number of disciples increased, and even some priests came to know Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Even the priests, some of them came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then, but in the process of that, Luke introduces us to this man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen, he said, was full of faith. He was full of wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a mighty witness for God. Then in starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, he begins to tell us that Stephen was engaged in witnessing. He was out in the marketplace. He was out in the synagogue of the freedmen, and he was proclaiming the gospel there. Uh, the synagogue of the freedmen was made up of believers that were Hellenistic Jews or, or Jewish people that were Hellenistic. That is, they spoke Greek. Uh, evidently, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. Whenever the, the, the nation of Israel was scattered around the world, Assyria and Babylon, many of the Jews settled in those places in the Greco-Roman world. They were Jewish populations in various cities all over that Mediterranean area. And so these had a synagogue, and, and Stephen was going there, and he was engaging them in conversation, and, and they were arguing with him but Stephen was, had such wisdom and such knowledge of God's Word, and so it was so filled with the Holy Spirit that they could not stay with him. Now, this is the, the issue. You have to understand a little bit about the background of the New Testament and about society in the New Testament and, and, and the way things worked. In the New Testament times, the, the society was a shame and honor system. It was the shame and honor system. And so if you got in an argument with someone or somebody questioned you, if you didn't respond to it, then they would assume that they were right and you were wrong. And so it was the kind of situation that if you publicly humiliated someone, then you had violated their honor. And so it's a shame and honor system. Now, we see some of that in our society too. Don't you humiliate me. Don't you expose me. Don't you do that. And so what was happening was this, that as Stephen was discussing with them, 
He was putting them to shame. He was putting them to shame. In Mississippi, you know how we would say that? He was putting them in their place. That's what he was doing. And, and when you get put in your place, how does it make you feel? Makes you joyous, doesn't it? Man, I just got put in my place. Somebody just told me off. <laughs> Man, I feel great about that. No, usually we do what Loretta Lynn said. We go to Fifth City, don't we? And so uh, that's what they did. It was a shame-honor system. And so when he put them in their place, what did they, what did they do? They said, we're going to put him in his place. And so they went out and they got a bunch of people together and they brought false accusations against him. They said things like this. This man said he's going to destroy the temple. This man said he's going to destroy the traditions and the customs of the law. This man's going to go against Moses. Who does he think he is? And, and they stirred up a multitude. It's amazing what stirs up people. <laughs> and, and the more they stirred it, the bigger it got. And finally, they brought him before the Sanhedrin and the high priest said, is this true? And Stephen addressed the assembly and Luke tells us that when he addressed the assembly, that his countenance became like that of an angel. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Only one time in my life have I seen someone that the Holy Spirit came over them so strongly that it looked like there was a, a glow around them. I was sitting in the nosebleed section in the Coliseum in Jackson, Mississippi, when a little Dutch woman stood before 10,000 people in a very small voice, stood there and shared about rescuing Jewish people during the Nazi op op occupation of Belgium, where she was living. She had a hiding place in her home. And this little bitty woman named Corey Ten Boone stood and talked among 10,000 people. And you could have heard a ten, uh, 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 you could have heard a pin drop. It was amazing. We were mesmerized by this little bitty woman with a bun on the back of her hair. It was amazing to me. But I remember looking down there and I saw around her the glory of God. It's amazing. The glory of God came upon Stephen and he began his witness. Now I made a mistake in the outline and I didn't realize I made a mistake in it until yesterday morning when I was sitting at the table going through this message to be able to share with you this morning. But I made a mistake. I talk about Stephen's character and that's the first point that you see on your outline, the character of Stephen. He was a godly man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was the kind of guy that you would want in, in your corner praying for you, uh, asking him for wisdom. He was, he was that kind of guy. He, he had that kind of character. But the second point is wrong. I, I got it wrong. I put Stephen's defense down there. And really, when you read Acts chapter 7, as, as he begins to, to share with the Sanhedrin as the high priest says, tell us your story, son. Uh, what, you know, really what he's doing here is not giving a defense. He's not defending himself. Not one time in this whole story is Stephen on the defensive. Even when he's dying, he's not on the defensive. He's never saying in any form or fashion, I'm a victim he, in no form or fashion is he saying, I, 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 I'm someone here that's helpless and hopeless. 
by no means. He's not giving a defense. What he's doing, he's giving a witness. He's witnessing. He's witnessing to this group. And so in his witness, what he does, he starts where they are to bring them to where he is in his relationship with Jesus. So he starts out and he says, listen, let's talk about Father Abraham, the the patriarch Abraham. You know, he wasn't always here in Israel. He didn't have a temple here. But even while he was in the land of the Chaldeans, God spoke to him there. Then he moved to Haran and God spoke to him there. After his father died, God spoke to him again and said, go to the land that I will show you and there I will bless you. I'll make your name great and all the nations of the earth will be blessed on account of you. And by faith, Abraham left the familiar to go to the unfamiliar. He followed the Lord, not knowing where he was going and he found this to be true. And this is what you see in the pattern of the message. You see, God makes a promise. God fulfills his promise. And then God, then the people respond. And what you find through his witness here is Stephen saying to them, look, God spoke to Abraham before the law was given, before a temple was built, God spoke. And what did he do? By simple faith, he followed the Lord and God fulfilled his promise and gave him an heir, even in his old age. And he goes through that. Then he talks about Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Joseph was rejected by his brothers. They sold him as a slave in Egypt. Yet God was with him, even in Egypt, outside of the land of Israel. (laughs) God was with him in Egypt, and God blessed him there, and God promised him there, And God fulfilled his promise there. And eventually his brothers and his fathers came down to Egypt. And God said, you're going to be in this land. I'll bless you here, but you're going to be enslaved. And and they were. And in their slavery, they called out to God. And God sent Moses. And he talks about Moses. And Moses comes. And, And Moses is in God's providence. He was saved as a child. When the little baby boys were being killed by Pharaoh, Moses' life was spared. He became the, daughter, uh, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the wisdom of Egypt, but yet with a heart for the Lord. Moses knew that God had his hand on him, and, and Moses knew that God wanted him to deliver Israel out of Egyptian bondage, but this is what he did. <laughs> he ran ahead of God. Have you ever ran ahead of God? Man, the biggest messes I ever made in my life is when I got in God's way. I, I knew what God wanted to do, but I'd say, time out, God, I'll handle this. <laughs> Only to find out, man, it had been a whole lot better if I'd have just been patient. Well, he goes and he breaks up a fight between two Hebrews. The next day, he, he, or, or a Hebrew and an Egyptian, he, and he kills the Egyptian. He buries him in the sand. Next day, he goes and he breaks up a fight between two Hebrews, and they looked at him and said, who do you think you are? come in here to try to deliver us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And then he fled to Midian, was there in Midian for 40 years. Then one day he saw the burning bush. And you know the story that God spoke to him. Then he went back and he became the person to deliver Israel from bondage. But how did the Israelites respond? They cried out to God. God sent a deliverer. And they started out, but how did they respond? You talk about a griping and complaining bunch of people. I mean, think about it. God parted the Red Sea. They went across some dry land. 
God gave them manna and quail. God gave them water from the rock, and they still mad. Be Saul. You know, there's some people you could hang them with a rotten rope and they'd still be mad. You just can't satisfy them. Even though God was doing all of these things, what did they do? They continued to rebel. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the blueprint for the tabernacle from the heavenly tabernacle to make the copy of the heavenly on earth, what did they do? They built a golden calf, didn't they? And they rebelled against God. And so what you see here is as Stephen is unfolding his witness, what he's showing is this, is that every time God moved, how did Israel respond? Most of the time in unbelief. And so finally he gets down to the tabernacle and Joshua and and the tabernacle and then the building of the temple. And this was the problem. The children of Israel became idolaters. Wow. The people of God can commit idolatry? You better believe it. When we stop, start substituting other things for God's place, we are in trouble. When we start putting everything else in our lives ahead of our relationship with God, we're in trouble. But this is what happened. They started worshiping the temple. When Solomon built the temple, he said, this house can't contain God. God's not going to be, God, there's no way you can contain God in this place. There's no way this can't happen because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And, 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 and the psalmist said in Psalm 139, where can I go? And God's not there. If I go to the highest heavens, God's there. If I go to the lowest part of the sea, God is there. God cannot be contained. But this is what happened. The people said, we have the temple of the Lord. We have the temple of the Lord. And the temple became a sacred place and it should have been a house of worship and prayer. But the temple became an end in itself and the people became religious instead of having a relationship with God. And that's a dangerous thing. And Stephen is building now. This sermon is building momentum. And it's getting hotter as it goes And finally, he says to them, you stiff-necked bunch of people. God's always been speaking to you. God's always been been fulfilling his promise. He said to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like unto you. And he says, guess what you did? God, God sent that prophet. His name was Jesus. And what did you do? The same thing you did to the other prophets. But this time, it's the Messiah You crucified him, you stiff-necked bunch of people. You've always rebelled against the things of God. And when he said that, they had to make a decision. Now, his message was not delivered in anger. Now, my voice right then might have sounded like a little bit on the anger side, but I believe that what he was saying to them is, listen, why don't you believe God? Why can't you accept what God has done? You've always been rebellious against God, and now you've crucified the very Son of God who loved you, gave his life for you, and you need to come to him. And in Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 34, it says that when they heard these words, they became enraged. They gnashed their teeth at him. And then Stephen 
looked up and he said, I see heaven open. And I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And they said, you hear this blasphemy? And they took him out and they stoned him, (laughs) killed him. And as he was dying, he said, Father, forgive them. He died so much like Jesus. And there was a young man there. They laid their garments at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. And he would give a hearty approval to the things that were going on. So you see Stephen's character, you see his, you see his witness, and you see his boldness. He boldly stood for the Lord. You know, that bothers me. It bothers me. Because I have to ask myself the question, and maybe you have to ask yourself this question too. If I were on trial for being a Christian, would I be bold enough to stand firm in my commitment to Christ? Believe me, the day is coming when we possibly will be required to do that very thing. We're living in the days of Noah, where every man is doing what is right in his own eyes and evil in the eyes of God. And it could be that we too one day might have to stand and give a bold witness before a hostile group. And I have to ask myself, will I be bold enough to stand for Jesus even if it costs me my life? Let's talk about dying with Jesus. Stephen became the first Christian martyr. But look how he died. He died with great assurance. He looked up and he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus standing up. Most of the time in the Bible, when you read about Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But in this case, Jesus is standing up. I think there's two reasons Jesus stood up. One as an affirmation to Stephen to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But I think on the other hand, he stood up in judgment to say, these have rejected me. But Stephen died with great assurance. You know, one of these days we're going to (laughs) die. I've been thinking about that a little bit. I got to fly home a little bit through a storm. You know, I've got to think about that. Taking off is optional, but landing is mandatory. (laughs) And I don't want to get in that airplane and uh, the the pilot says, okay, let's start figuring out our options to land this thing. I I want us to have a plan to land before we take off. Amen? (laughs) You know, I've been been thinking about saying, you know what? What if that thing goes down or whatever? But you know what? I realized this. That plane goes down. I'm going up. That's right. Because I know in whom I believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed unto him to that day. There was no fear in Stephen's eyes. There was only the glory of God because he knew Jesus. And he looked up and he saw Jesus standing to receive him. But also notice this. He died with grace. Man, Think about this. People 
are killing you. They're throwing rocks at you. And yet he's so much like Jesus that he looks at his accusers and those around him and he says simply this, Father, forgive them. Don't lay this sin against them. Father, forgive them. Oh my goodness. His hands were not raised in anger. His hands were like the hands of Jesus because Christ was all over him. He died with grace. I want to die with grace, don't you? I want to die with the grace of God. You know, I, I remember the first person I ever saw take their last breath. I saw them get up out of church. I, I, I saw the family getting up out of church during the sermon and going to the door, and I knew something was going on. As soon as church was over, I got in my vehicle, drove to the hospital, and there they were standing around their father's bed, and he was breathing his last we stood there with our hands held and we watched him slip away into eternity. And when he did, I've never experienced such peace and the presence of the Lord like that before. It was amazing. He died with grace. Jesus came and got him. And Jesus came and got Stephen. But there's one other thing. <laughs> He died with power. He died with power. He died with a tremendous testimony that would become a powerful testimony to the early church, but also to a young man who stood there by the name of Saul. He died with such powerful influence that it would change the direction of the church. He died with such powerful influence that when persecution broke out, it didn't stop the church. It expanded the church. The church got out of Jerusalem. They went to Judea. They went to Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth because God took the death of Stephen and he died with power and the power of God was evident and the church was inspired by his death to continue and to carry out the message of salvation. But there was one young man there by the name of Saul. He watched how he died and he couldn't get away from it. In Acts chapter 22, verse 20, Paul shares his testimony. He said, I was there. I held the garments of those who killed Stephen. A little bit later, this man's walking down a Damascus road and he's thinking about how Stephen died. He's persecuting the church. But he couldn't get out of his mind that powerful witness of Stephen and the way he died. He's walking down the road, and that's heavy on his heart. This man's full of anger. But he saw a man die that was full of grace. He saw the power of God. And this man would have an encounter with Jesus that would change his life. Now, what am I driving at? What I'm driving at is this. Your spiritual influence will outlive you by years and years and years. Research shows that even 250 years after your death, your influence will still be, be alive. Think about it. It's over 2,000 years ago that Stephen died as the first Christian martyr. Is his influence still living today? Listen, you don't realize the power of a godly man or a godly woman, and how God will use that life and even that 
death to bring glory to his name. I don't know about you, but I want to die with Jesus. That my life will reflect his glory. I want to sing a little song for you. That I believe says it all. Jesus. And I want my life to count, don't you? Oh God, 
Help us be like Stephen.